All right, I want to welcome you to church this morning. There's a handout for you to kind of follow along this morning in your bulletin, and you could open up to Psalm 103. That's where we'll be this morning. While you're doing that, one more quick announcement. There's a one-day parenting conference that's happening at Crossroads, and I agreed to speak at this as long as on the promo posters they made my head really tall and skinny. So they obliged. So I'm going to be speaking at it along with a couple of other people that will that will be there. It's for you. It's for your friends. It's for your family. It's going to be at Crossroads, kind of near San Jose City College. This morning, we're going to be talking about the idea of being accepted. And uh, I want you to think of a time that, that you were accepted. I don't care if it was for a job uh, or for a loan, a sports team, a college like Juan getting into Stanford. We recently had our daughter enrolled in a healthcare program. Getting accepted to that was exciting news to me. It just feels good to be accepted, doesn't it? It's one of those things. This is what credit card companies know is if they send you an, a little envelope and on it it says that you are pre-approved. It just feels good to be approved for something. You're like, yes. And some people just are like getting we, you know, reeled in from that because you're pre-approved. You're so good that we're going to approve you before we even, you know, usually on mine it says, you know, like, like Dabib Carlsay, which is weird because my name is David Carlson, but, uh, you know, they say, Dabib Carlsay, you're pre-approved. And there's something inside me that goes, yes. Um, but I've resisted from the, uh, the offer that they often put in there. Perhaps one of the biggest approvals, um, just in a tangible earthly relationship that we have, is when someone is putting a ring on your finger, looking at you in the face, saying, I do. That's a powerful moment of acceptance and approval, isn't it? Where someone has looked at you and says, I choose you. I approve of you to be spending the rest of my life with. Now think of the alternative to being approved. The idea and the words unclaimed come to mind unwanted, unaccepted. These are devastating wounds. Some of the scars that we've experienced in life that come from this kind of rejection are so on the surface that right now if you were to if you were to kind of touch on that place, it would be it would be just really, really painful. That's the idea of rejection, the opposite of being accepted. Now, here's my question this morning. We're talking about God as our lover because that's actually how he reveals himself in Scripture. And we're not going to take time to review this, but some people are really uncomfortable with that. And we get to a place in the Psalms where we see grown men, mighty warriors, pouring out their heart in love songs to God. And if we're honest, many of us say, man, that's not where my relationship with God is. Or maybe has ever been but I'd sure want it to be there. And God himself reveals himself to his bride, the church, as the lover of the church, the groom that's coming back for the the bride. So as we think about the idea of our lover is, and we've been looking at different psalms and different character traits of God, when we think about the idea of our lover accepts, it ought to form these kind of questions in your mind, or perhaps they're percolating right now. What about a loving God? Doesn't he love everyone? Would God ever be the cause of that painful unacceptance that I was just describing? Would he ever be the cause of that that feeling of rejection? Wouldn't a loving God, I mean, isn't it in his job description, he has to love everyone? So, the fact that God accepts, what what does that really 
talk about. Isn't it arrogant for someone to say uh, who God does and doesn't accept? We're going to explore some of those thoughts today. I hope you're in Psalm 103. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, at any moment you could raise your hand and someone from the back would gladly get you a Bible so that you could follow along. Otherwise, look on with a neighbor. Uh, but Psalm 103 is an amazing psalm. And right here in the middle of the Old Testament, uh, we really see the New Testament gospel uh, being expressed. It's right here in the Old Testament. The gospel is not a New Testament idea. Um, but we get, to, we get to see it. And I want you to just see how this uh, psalm presents the good news. I'm going to read for you a good chunk of it, verses 1 to 12, and it's going to be kind of a lot to take in. We're, uh, I'm going to talk fast this morning. You need to listen quick because we're cramming a lot in in a short period of time. Listen up. Psalm 103, verse 1 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. This week we're looking at a God who accepts. Last week in Psalm 19, the Scriptures told us of a God who reveals in a general way through His creation. We just sang a song that was so perfect for last week, but so perfect for this week. It's a great bridge kind of a song. Talking about the idea that, that the, the stars declare the glory of God, as Psalm 19 puts it. And in Psalm 19, we see the first part of the psalm really is kind of a, a general revelation. It's generally revealing what God is like through creation. And then the second part of the psalm, remember Ben talked to us about this, it dove into the specific revelation or the special revelation, and that was with the law of God. God had a way of revealing himself to some people, and I'm going to just highlight a single phrase that we just read from verse 8. And I want you to see this woven through the Old Testament and how God reveals to His people what He's like, what His character is like. To Moses, in Exodus chapter 34, He says this, The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. To Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a prophet that was called of God to come and rebuild the city. And Nehemiah is preaching to God's people. And he's calling out their past sin and, and calling them forward to come back into relationship with their loving Heavenly Father. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, it says this, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. That's a way of saying they were proud. And appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. 
But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. I'll give you one more. There's plenty I could go to. But this is a guy named Jonah, a reluctant prophet. The reluctant prophet Jonah is called to go to his enemies. And on why he was fleeing from doing that task, here's what he says. Listen to this in Jonah chapter 4. And he prayed and said to the Lord, and said, That is why I made haste to flee. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know why he's mad? Because God's sending him to his enemies. You know why he's mad that he's sending him to his enemies? Because he knows what God is like. He knows God's quick to forgive those who would turn to him in repentance and humility. Ever been there? I've been there before. That's Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Do you see a drumbeat going on? And now to King David. We have verse 7 and 8. The Lord, he, he made known his ways to Moses, verse 7 says. His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Here's what I'm wanting to show you. The God of the New Testament is not different from the God of the Old Testament. There are some who have a, mis, uh, a, 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 a bad perception of that thinking that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me pick this apart very briefly and just give you a few thoughts about what this what this means. With the idea of merciful is that God is emotionally moved toward us. You could say it this way. He took pity on us. He sees us and He's merciful. And some of your translations say that He's compassionate. It also says the Lord's gracious. This is the idea that He reaches out to us despite our being undeserving. He doesn't wait for us to take a turn toward Him. Long before that we ever loved Him, He loved us. Number three is that He's slow about His anger. He restrains His just wrath. And He's slow about His anger. And finally, there's an abundance of love that exists within the character of God that will not change with the seasons. And it's so much more and so much big, bigger than we could possibly hope or imagine. When you think about the idea of acceptance, here's one of the challenges that I have when I come and approach God. When I come and approach any person for that matter, if I come and approach someone and I begin to get to know them on a relational level, what I sometimes might do is project how I would react, how I would think, how I am in a situation onto that person. And isn't it true that when you're in a relationship with a person, you have to just receive who they are as they are. And they may be different than you. This is called conflict, right? You have an idea of the right way. I was arguing with a friend of mine yesterday about the proper way to build a hamburger. Now, this guy's very opinionated and has good ideas about why his burger is, is made in such a way. But I had to contradict him on some things. And, and we had some conflict. Now, I could have just imposed that on him and said, no, 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 no. You like hamburgers the way I like hamburgers. That's called being a kindergartner, really. It just means the world is all about you and everyone should adjust to you. But as you grow mature, hopefully you realize, no, there's differences and there's different people and there's different ideas. And I now have to accept my friend. Uh, we did this without any texting or therapy or anything. We just, we just got over it. 
But I had to get past this with my friend. <laughs> he's shaking his head no. I love it. Um, I had to get past this with my friend that he's just different than me. And I, and I adjust now to, to who he is, as he is, right? With God, as we talk about acceptance, sometimes here's what happens, is we think about our acceptance and how we accept people, and we impose that on God. Now, this ought to strike fear and danger in your mind and say, that would probably be a bad idea to do that. But I think it's our tendency to, to, to think this way and, 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 and do this. Let me just... Let me just talk about our acceptance for a second. And I realize that in doing so, um, this may not be, this may not be totally fair. It's not like I can somehow summarize all of your acceptance patterns, right? Uh, from the front. But you'll, you'll, you'll see these tendencies and, and maybe find yourself in them. Our own acceptance is, is imperfect, to be sure. There's a certain dim reflection that as I accept people, I'm accepting people the way God does. But it is a dim reflection. It's not imperfect. Uh, it's, it's also fickle. I tend to see this in my own self, that, that I accept people uh, often as long as they accept in return. And when there's not a reciprocation, oftentimes there's a struggle within all of us that says, why would I keep accepting that person? So we tend to be fickle and perfect in a dim reflection. On the other hand, God's is perfect and perfectly holy. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 103 for a minute. It says, bless his holy name. All that God does stems from who He is. That's His name. And what He is. That's His character and that's holy. So as we look at all the other attributes, this, this character trait of holiness that Ben touched on last week from Psalm 19, it really permeates and invades every other characteristic. Such that if God is accepting, He's accepting from a holy standpoint. It's, it's a holy accepting. This perfect holiness invades all other aspects of God. Let me give a quick word about tolerance for a second. Tolerance and being tolerant right now is a really high value amongst people. It's a word that's thrown around often, and, I, and there's, a, there's a whole battle going on over the, over the word. There's another website uh, that, that Focus on the Family puts out. It's got some great stuff on it, but it's called True Tolerance. So there's tolerance and true tolerance, and this is a little bit like the... Uh, the, the bumper, you know, uh, sticker fish battle that went on back and forth, you know, ones, you know, just the stuff that goes on. It's kind of, it's kind of comical to watch from a distance what happens, but there's a battle over the word tolerance right now. Let me just say a quick word about tolerance. God does not love, accept, or tolerate people by relaxing his standard, by ignoring sin, or by adjusting his own holy nature. And I would, posed to us that neither should we. Here's what I mean by that. When we do this, it leads to false friendship. It leads to a community that's really counterfeit. It says this, as long as you agree mostly with me, I will accept you. But if we aren't dealing with the sin, it's fickle and it's counterfeit and it's false. God's love goes beyond Tolerance to true and total acceptance. And the only way that is possible with a perfectly holy being is to deal with the sin, to deal with the junk that goes on in our relationships in our lives. Enter the Savior of the world. And that's what we're going to spend our time focusing on this morning. That's why Jesus was sent. The central truth, if I could give you one big idea, and I think this is the only fill-in you have, so don't be lazy, fill it in. Use some lead this morning. 
Um, it's this. God's very nature is loving. This is why he reaches out and accepts us. I did a little study this week on how many times the word holy and accept show up side by side in the scripture. And it's not surprising that it's there side by side often in the scriptures. Let me give you a couple. Romans 12.1 instructs us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is it? Holy and acceptable to God. That's how we're to present our bodies to Him. First Peter chapter two, four to five says this. As you came, as you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's that word holy. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Holy and acceptable tie in together when we're talking about holy being. A provocative statement that is that is shocking to someone who wasn't raised around the Bible or shocking to someone who was raised around the church and near the Bible, but no one ever opened the Bible and taught the Bible to where you really see what it says. What I'm about to say will, will sound foreign to you. Here it is. God's holiness is going to get to condemn many who will persist in their rebellion against Him. The same holiness is going to be the salvation of some who are accepted by God. That's the message of the Bible. So it begs a giant question. How is one accepted by God? That's an important question. How is one accepted by God? Go back to Genesis. Cain and Abel. One's offering was accepted and one was was rejected. It starts early. Those who were accepted and those who were, were rejected by God. Now again, instead of you coming this morning and placing your opinion and your correction on the Scriptures, I want to plead with you to let the Scriptures correct your idea. To let the Scriptures inform your thinking. Some of you haven't made your mind up about the Bible yet. Those, I would say, investigate it. Check it out. Do the research. Do the hard work. But for those of you who said, I've made up my mind, this is God's authoritative word in my life, would you place yourself this morning under the authority of God and not over it as judge? Uh, Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Here is some more of this this uh, preaching to the self that goes on. I'm learning more and more in life how important it is to preach to myself over and over and over these messages. We saw this in Psalm 42. Remember this? Why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's preaching to himself. Put your hope in God. (laughs) I hope you talk to yourself in this way. This is healthy to preach to yourself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. A quick side about blessing here. The word blessing, like a lot of other language, has sometimes gets thrown around, right? Oh, bless you, brother. I'm so blessed. God bless you. After a sneeze, right? So we hear bless, 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 bless. We don't really know what it means. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, made it really succinct and it made a lot of sense to me. 
I get how the Lord blesses me. It's confusing in a way, isn't it, of how we can bless the Lord. Right? What does it mean that God blesses us? Just call it out. Someone tell me. Help me out. Just, you don't have to be theologically correct. Just, what, what, what does that mean? You've said it. Huh? Family. So he blesses us with family. What else? Peace. Okay. So normally what we do, and this is exactly what I would say too, we start to list off needs he's met, things he's done for us, right? These are blessings. We say this all the time. Bless you, brother. I've been so blessed by God. We just go over and over with blessing. But then turn that around. What does it look like for us to bless God? If you take the same idea, how can we add to God? Who's perfectly holy and perfectly complete. Let me read for you. Some of you are nervous. They're like, don't call me. Um, let me read for you what D.A. Carson, he's a lot smarter than me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read from him. When the Lord blesses us, he reviews our needs and he responds to them. That's, that's the general gist of what you just said to me. Now watch this. When we bless the Lord, we review His excellencies and we respond to them, in part by calling them back out to Him. That's what it looks like for us to bless the Lord with praise. It's to review His excellencies and call them out. Part of why we have our children worship in here with us is that I hope parents... I hope that you are constantly calling out the excellencies of God. And I hope that your kids get to see you emotionally involved in this. Realizing that God loves a sinner like me. And that you're moved in worship. That it's not just somehow uh, information and instructional around the dinner table. But that they see you blessing the Lord on a regular basis. Verses 2-3 to three say this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits... He's telling himself, never forget. Remember? Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. The very first thing he lists is forgiveness. It's the first, it's the top and most prominent one in this list of benefits that God provides. And we're going to stop and camp out on forgiveness for a moment. Because it is the ultimate form of acceptance, I would say. Maybe you've been there, or maybe you are here, or maybe you've heard this said before, where someone comes along and says, I've tried the Christian thing. I prayed a prayer. Nothing changed. I know I'm forgiven, but nothing changed. And maybe you could be dumbfounded by that and say, what's missing? What is it about that person that's, that's different than someone whose life has been transformed and they're a totally new person in Christ? What's missing, I would say, is the word repentance. You see, those who maybe have just said, I know I'm forgiven, but their life is just still their own and they're living their own way and they're the Lord of their manner and their life, they're still living for themselves, aren't they? Those who say, I prayed a prayer, checked off a card, whatever, it was a, it was a genie wish. That's all it was. It was a hocus pocus. I think I'll give this a try. What's missing in both of those is the idea of repentance. We aren't forgiven by us declaring it so. I don't declare, Dave, you're forgiven of your sins. I'm also not forgiven by a spiritual group of people or an authoritative church somehow forgiving me. You know why? I didn't offend myself or that church. I've offended God. So one is forgiven when God, the one who's been offended, declares it so. The moment that a sorry sinner turns to God in faith. There's a transformation. 
that goes on. The forgiveness is right there. It's already there. Repentance is a message that from the prophets through Jesus was preached. The prophets of old, over and over and over again, said this, Repent! Save yourself from this evil generation. Repent! 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 Over and over. The word really just means to turn. Turn from your life of sin. Turn to God. It's not just turning away from sin. It's turning to God. And you go read the prophets. The prophets, time and again, were sent by God to God's people to say, go warn them of of pending judgment. Tell them to turn from going away from me to coming toward me. That's what the word repent is. How about Peter? Peter in Acts chapter, well, a lot of different places in Acts said this, repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. Over and over again, he preaches to the people and says the action step is repent. It wasn't to accept forgiveness necessarily, was it? It wasn't to check off a card or pray and invite Jesus into their heart. The action step is repent. Paul, often, all through uh, his books, called for repentance. Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? It should, because he said it a lot. And if you're in your Bibles, you see that a lot. In Matthew 11, he goes to the unrepentant cities, and you know what he proclaims on them? Woes. Woe to you. Woe to you. You know what woe is? It's a fancy word for judgment's coming. Bad days are ahead. If you're unrepentant, the message over and over again is to repent. It's to turn. Now listen to this. Repentance must go with remission. I'm using the word remission because I'm about to read from an old guy who's dead and this word is not familiar to our ears, so I use that word. It basically means pardon. Repentance must go with remission. The two act and react upon each other. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as I read. He just did some great work on this in All of Grace, a little book I've been reading through the last couple of months on my iPhone. Here's what he says. It cannot be that the pardon of sin should be given to an impenitent sinner. This were to confirm him in his evil ways and to teach him to think little of evil. If the Lord were to say, you love sin and live in it, and you are going on from bad to worse, but all the same, I forgive you. This were to proclaim a horrible license for iniquity. The foundations of social order would be removed and moral anarchy would follow. I cannot tell you what innumerable mischiefs would occur, would certainly occur if you could divide repentance and forgiveness and pass by the sin while the sinner remained as fond of it as ever. In the very nature of things, if we believe in the holiness of God, it must be so that if we continue in our sin and will not repent of it, we cannot be forgiven but must reap the consequences of our obstinacy. According to the infinite goodness of God, we are promised that if we forsake our sins, confessing them, and will by faith accept the grace which is provided in Christ Jesus, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But so long as God lives, there can be no promise of mercy to those who continue in their evil ways and refuse to acknowledge their wrongdoing. Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. No one can be so foolish as to imagine that the judge of all the earth will put away our sins if we refuse to put them away ourselves.
Now, I know that was a lot, but that's a good word, church. If you aren't reading old dead guys, come talk to me. I've got some good ones. We just don't hear this much, do we? I mean, in a normal week, I don't, I don't hear a lot about this unless I go and look for it. I'll tell you the truth. When I put months ago that this Sunday was going to be God accepts, you know what I wanted to preach to you folks today? A warm and fuzzy. I wanted a warm and fuzzy message. That's what I long for. I've got tons of great stories. They'll make you laugh and cry. It would make us all feel so accepted by God. You know what God prevented me from doing? From preaching a warm and fuzzy. Over and over again, as this message progressed, it was just tell the truth. Just tell the simple, plain truth. The simple, plain truth is that God does, in fact, accept. But He will not and cannot, by His nature, accept a rebel. Accept sin and be made one the way he talks. A bride and a groom. Total acceptance, not tolerance, not putting up with in the far reaches of his kingdom somewhere. But no, full rights as son and daughter. Full inheritance as son and daughter. Totally accepted into the family of God. And to do that, there's a truth message. Christians in this room, do not shy away from the simple gospel message. This will get you metaphorically crucified as you proclaim this simple message. It's not politically correct. It doesn't seem very loving to a person who's not hearing the message. But, but to those who, who get this, it's life. This is the gospel. Don't shrink back. Don't shy away. Don't try to help God out by imposing the way you would accept someone on Him. Let's learn from our Lord and Savior and proclaim it as He has it. Now this is seen, this acceptance is seen most vividly in the cross. How deep His love, God's love, that He would make us holy and therefore acceptable at the cost of His Son. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. That's what we proclaim. He who is in Christ is accepted by God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. David was proclaiming, catch this, David was proclaiming a divine, eternal truth. Pointing toward Messiah, a perfect substitutionary atonement so that once and for all of time, your sin could be pardoned. I wonder what it meant to David as he wrote some of these things and only caught, again, kind of a, kind of the way a foggy mirror would look to you as you're trying to make out shapes. He only had part of God's will revealed to him. This was long before Messiah. On this side of the cross, we're able to look back and see how, how God's plan works and fits together. But don't you see the gospel right here in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west. He does not deal with sinners as uh, uh, according to their iniquity. Now, it would be a mistake to think that the Christian life is only about forgiveness. 
Forgiveness starts this list. The Christian life is about forgiveness, but it's about so much more, isn't it? Forgiveness. Now, let's just, let me just read off these benefits very quickly. He forgives. He heals. He redeems. He crowns. He satisfies. He's righteous. He brings justice. He's withholding what we deserve and gives us what we don't. That's all from Psalm 103. That's starting to sound like really good news to me. Turning your Bibles just for a moment to Psalm 51. Not every psalm gives us a detailed explanation of the conditions with which it was written. But this one does. In my notes in the ESV, it says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Usually we talk about David and Bathsheba. The story, for those of you who don't know, is a king who should be out to war and he sees a beautiful woman. He takes her to be uh, someone that he sleeps with. Doesn't affect just David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba's married. He has Uriah uh, killed on the front lines of battle. Not only that, there's a baby involved, born, and that baby ends up dying. Not only that, but David's household has the sword never leave it, and he has sons that go astray. And there's all kinds of consequence for the sin. But this psalm is well worn in my Bible because this psalm is where you go. This is one of the places I go when I feel like dirt because I've committed sin. I've wronged those I've loved. And this psalm informs us about confession and restoration. And let me point something out about Psalm 51, the same one that wrote Psalm 103, by way of illustration that it's not just about forgiveness. Psalm 51 is not just about forgiveness. It's the starting point. Because if you're not in right relationship with God, all these other things are not there. If you're in a wrong relationship with God right now and you know that, I can tell you with certainty, your prayer life is a train wreck. Your joy in the Lord is a train wreck. Because that puzzle piece has to be there. We we talk about this all the time. You must be born again. Forgiveness is the key that unlocks these other things. But it goes on from there. David prays and asks for what he already knows is true. He says it this way, According to your character, have mercy and blot out my sin. He goes on to ask for these things. You can find it in Psalm 51. He asks for thorough washing. Wash my mind. Cleanse me from all my impurities. Gladness. Renewed spirit. God's presence and that God would restore the joy of His salvation. When you lose the joy that only God can fulfill, you start to seek it out in other things. You know what David did? He sought it out in a beautiful woman. It led to a nightmare of problems in his life. So he asked for forgiveness, but he asked for all these other things as well. A full, robust life. And he caps it with saying, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. We ought to be praying that way, people. We ought to be praying for that which we already know is true. And out of God's character, it's there. But to call out to God these things. The Christian life is about forgiveness that allows for eternal life and a quality of life now, vibrant and vital and daily and priceless. You know what this all leads to? Look at Psalm 51, verse 13. Talking about all these things. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
Okay? Now look at verse 13. Look at what this restoration leads to. Ready? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Quick side note. Praise God that effective evangelism does not require a perfect, blemish-free life. Amen? Who's going to teach the transgressors their ways and the glory and goodness of God's grace but a sinner? One who's an expert in sinner. If you haven't come to grips that you're an expert at sinning, you might be the farthest from God. You might be, you might be needing saving from your religiosity. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. No, no, no. I've got you beat. I'm the chief of all sinners. And you know what? He doesn't say it past tense. Go check it out. He says, I am the chief of sinners. He recognizes that ongoing, as long as I'm in this flesh, I am failing God. But he wants this restoration. He's begging for forgiveness. He's calling these things out for cleansing so that he can teach transgressors their ways. And that sinners would turn to God. He's, he's calling it out for effective evangelism. The blessings of God lead us to responding to them in praise. And part of that praise is responding to God's acceptance by accepting others. Verse, uh, Romans 15, 7. Just listen to this. Write it down if you want. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Isn't that beautiful? You just mimic what the Father's showing you. You know how you know how to forgive? Because the Father's forgiven you a whole bunch more. You just mimic your Father. I want to read for you a story out of a guy that's had an impact on my life. He's gone home to be with the Lord, but he um, he always called his church the slowest uh, shrinking uh, church in America. He said they started with 90 and went down to 60 over the course of you know 12 years of doing ministry. Uh, this is in a small town in Northern California. He had a book called um, Getting Fired for the Glory of God. Wrote it to youth pastors. <clears throat> I'm going to read a, a, a story because he's a great communicator and it's story time. Every month a youth group at River Road Church visited Holcomb Manor, a local nursing home, to do a church service for the people who stayed there. Dale Jenkins was a reluctant youth group volunteer and former alcoholic, didn't like nursing homes and had avoided the service. But because of a flu epidemic, Daryl was asked to join a depleted group of sponsors to help with the monthly service. He agreed to go as long as he didn't have to be part of the program. The day of the service, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. While the service was in progress, Daryl leaned against the back wall between two residents in wheelchairs. Just as the service finished and Daryl thought about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. Startled, Daryl looked down to see a very old man in a wheelchair holding his hand tightly. The old man was frail and obviously lonely. What could Daryl do but hold his hand back? Oliver Leak was his name. His 91-year-old frame bent and twisted, his face covered with deep wrinkles and his mouth open most of the time. Oliver's face was expressionless and Daryl doubted whether the man could hear or see anything. As everyone began to leave, Daryl realized he didn't want to leave the old man. He had been left too many times in his long life. Confused by his feelings, Daryl leaned over to Oliver and whispered, I'm uh, sorry, I have to leave, but I'll be back. I promise. Without any warning, Mr. Leak responded by squeezing Daryl's hand and then let go. Daryl's eyes filled with tears, and he grabbed his stuff and started to leave. 
Inexplicably, Daryl heard himself say to the old man, I love you. Where did that come from? What's the matter with me? Daryl came back the next month and the month after that. The routine was the same. Daryl would stand in the back. Mr. Leak would grab his hand. Daryl would say he had to leave. Mr. Leak would squeeze his hand. And Daryl would say softly, I love you, Mr. Leak. He had learned his name, of course. Soon Daryl found himself looking forward to visiting his old friend. On Daryl's sixth visit, he could tell something was wrong. Mr. Leak wasn't at the service. Daryl wasn't too concerned at first because it often took the nursing home, uh, the, the nurses, a long time to wheel everyone out. But as the service went on, Daryl became alarmed. He went to the head nurse. Um, I don't see Mr. Leak here today. Is he okay? The nurse asked Daryl to follow her, and she led him to room 27 where Oliver lay in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven. At 40 years of age, Daryl had never seen someone dying, but he knew Oliver was near death. Slowly, Daryl walked to the side of the bed and grabbed Oliver's hand. Oliver was unresponsive, and it didn't take long for the tears to come for Daryl. They had never spoken, and Daryl knew he might never see Oliver again. So much he wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come. They were together about an hour when the youth director gently interrupted Daryl to say they were leaving. Daryl stood to leave and squeezed Mr. Leak's hand for the last time. I'm sorry, Oliver, I have to go. I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze. The tears were unstoppable now. Daryl stumbled toward the door, trying to gain his composure. A young woman was standing at the door, and Daryl almost bumped into her. I'm sorry, he said, I didn't see you. It's all right, I've been waiting to see you, she said. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. Yes, I know. I wanted to meet you, she went on. When the doctors said he was dying, I came immediately. We were very close. They said he couldn't talk, but he always talked to me. Not much, but I knew what he was saying. Last night he woke up. His eyes were bright and alert. He looked straight into my eyes and said, Please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And he lay back down and closed his eyes. I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him soon, and you can tell him hello. He struggled to open his eyes again, but this time his face lit up with a mischievous smile that he only gave to me. And he said, as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know, but Jesus comes to see me every month, and he might not know I've gone. He closed his eyes and hasn't spoken since. I told the nurse what he said, and she told me about you coming every month, holding his hand. I wanted to thank you for him, for me. And, well, I never thought of Jesus as being chubby and bald as you, but I imagine Jesus is very glad to have been mistaken for you. I know Oliver is. Thank you. She leaned over and kissed Daryl on the forehead. Oliver uh, Oliver Leak died peacefully the next morning. May God give us more volunteers like Daryl Jenkins. Now, in light of that true story, listen to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus telling a parable about sheep and goats, those accepted and those who are under condemnation. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous, those accepted, who will inherit the kingdom, now called righteous, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Those who are accepted by God reach out and accept others. Our acceptance of people, of course, doesn't save them, but it points to the one who can and does save us. I want to wrap up this morning, at least the sermon time, with looking at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So it would stand to reason to say, if we want to know how we're to accept people, look at how Jesus accepted people. That's how you get a picture of what God's acceptance is like. Just a few. Jesus accepts a woman caught in sin in the very act the Scriptures record. Jesus accepts children who come to Him. Jesus accepts rich people who humble themselves and put their trust in Him. Jesus accepts peasants who leave everything to follow him. And Jesus accepts disgusting sinners who are in the very midst of their earthly punishment. The thief on the cross. Everyone I just mentioned is equally in need of a Savior. Equally broken. Equally sinful in God's eyes. They also all shared a contrite spirit a feeling of remorse over sin, a grieving of their wrong. I want to invite the band up, and we're going to move into a tangible, living illustration of this acceptance of God. It's called communion or the Lord's table. As they do, I I put this out to you, my friends, this morning. Do not despise the kindness of God. God's very nature is loving. Therefore, He reaches out and accepts us. Some presume upon the kindness of God, heaping up wrath for the day of judgment. Some ignore the kindness of God, happy in their life, unafraid of warning, confident that they have the right way. And some have embraced the kindness of God, letting it lead them, as it was intended, to repentance. I've asked this question this morning, and I want to be really crystal clear so that I don't leave you confounded or wandering with a different message. How is one accepted by God and can we know? The Bible makes it clear. God has revealed to us the path of life. Here it is in a nutshell. It's called the Gospel. Whether a little or a lot, every single person has sinned and the just payment for missing the mark is death. That's all sin is. It just is is missing the mark. Jesus paid our fine, taking our sins on Himself in exchange for giving us His righteousness. That's what occurred on the cross. And finally, we receive this gift and put on Christ by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ 
completely to save. And the Bible says, you will be saved. It will transform you. You don't have to go up and muster up good works. You know what will happen from the inside out. Person after person in this body could testify to this. From the inside out, you will begin to care for people like you didn't care before. You will begin to love on people and forgive people in a way that you never thought possible. You will care for their comfort and you will be concerned for them in a way you've never dreamed of. You will be hungry for a meeting with God's people. You will be hungry for hearing from Him in His Word. And you'll wonder periodically, here it is, ready? Where is this coming from? It's God's Spirit in you. A miracle has taken place. It's called the new birth. It's called salvation. It's called being born again. The thought I leave you with in your notes is this. Holiness and acceptance are God's work in and for us and not something that we can accomplish on our own. And that's what we're going to celebrate right now. I want the band to lead. If the, if the ushers would come and just pass the elements, I want you to hold uh, the bread, hold the cup in your hand. I'll come and lead us uh, after, after the song is over. We'll take together. Um, band, lead us. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for leaving us this tangible expression of what you've done for us and are doing for us says that we're to celebrate this. This is a, a celebration and we proclaim the Lord's death until you come again. And we're looking forward to that day being soon. In Jesus' name, Amen.